Wait till I, oh, I just found my voice. <laughs> As you can see on the screens, we were over the last number of weeks when the season that we call Lent in the Christian church began, we started by um, tracing the life of Jesus during the last week of his life. Each week we do and the next um, day in his life. So we started, if you go way over here, that was Palm Sunday. We know that date. In fact, Palm Sunday uh, traditionally is going to be next Sunday. Palm Sunday. And then the next day, if you look, if you can see this picture, we call that Melancholy Monday because actually that's the day where Jesus cleansed the temple and he had some harsh, tough things to do on that particular day. So that's Melancholy Monday. Um, Tuesday, um, Tuesday was a day where Jesus faced all kinds of tests. And I don't remember which one we put up for Testy Tuesday. Oh, it must be over here somewhere. Testy Tuesday, um, uh, the the religious leaders tried to um, get Jesus to mess up with tests, incredibly difficult tests. They failed. Jesus gave a few tests of his own. The religious leaders failed, and so Testy Tuesday was over. Wednesday, we looked at last week, we called that Wacky Wednesday because it was wacky in terms of what the people did that day. That's the day that uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees took counsel to kill Jesus. It had been building up for a long time. That's when Judas uh, was paid the money to betray Jesus. And of course, it's the day where we don't know anything that Jesus did. So we show him pictured here talking to Mary and Martha, which is probably the home where he stayed during the, that day of his life. So that was Wacky Wednesday. And today we come to what we are going to call um, um, Maundy Thursday. Now, this chapter today is going, or this uh, day is going to be a lot of the Bible. In our short time today, we're going to deal with only seven chapters of the Bible. A nice small amount, um, actually a lot, but, um, it's very, very significant because it is on this Maundy Thursday, and Maundy comes from the Latin, which means mandate or commandment. Jesus said to his disciples on this day, a new commandment I give to you. And so it's the day in which Jesus washed his disciples' feet, in which the Last Supper was inaugurated. That's what we call Wacky Wednesday. But it all begins with um, this. If you um, could see this hourglass. And if you knew, which very few of us will ever know, but if you knew that you had but one day to live, what would you do? Have you ever thought about that? Where would you go? Who would you want to be with? With those people, what would you say? What would you do? Obviously, it would be very, very significant, probably the most important day of your life. And so today we're going to see what Jesus did on the last day of his life. Actually, the last day of his life began for him on, uh, for us rather, on Thursday. And we're going to look at today what took place on Thursday for Jesus. However, you need to know that Thursday for us today was Thursday and Friday for Jesus. Because our days begin at midnight. Their days began when the sun went down. So it's a little bit different there, but today we're gonna to look at what happened between maybe the hours of four or three or four in the afternoon till midnight on Thursday. I went online to find out what people said they would do if they had one day to live, and I found this for all you students. It's called E-Notes Homework Help. 
Now, I don't know if you ever use this. You've got to pay money for it. But this is what people said. If you had to write an essay at school, and this was your topic, what you would do if you had one day to live, here's what they wrote. Here's the first one. I probably wouldn't do anything different. You live the way you die, I think. I don't believe in deathbed repentance or deathbed forgiveness. So they just live their life. Another one said, for me, there's no question I would spend the day with my wife and kids. I would want those last 24 hours to be spent with the people I care the most about. And I think most of us would probably strongly agree with that. Here's what someone else wrote. I would draw a lot of money out of the bank and treat myself to the best meals of my life. I would certainly want to make a few phone calls. I might listen to some of my favorite music or read passages for some of my favorite books. I might want to give some of my favorite possessions away. Someone else wrote, I would like to spend it with my family and I would like to be in a beautiful place, a place I had never been before, some place that is breathtaking and yet peaceful. I would want it to be memorable for my family and a place with that would have positive associations for their future memories of their last day with me. One other person said, I would want to have fun with my family and friends and try to go out laughing. I would want to be in Disneyland, somewhere filled with youthful exuberance. I would also like to thank those who have made my life possible and enjoyable. And this is what Mussolini said. It is better to live a day as a lion than a hundred days as a sheep. Well, our question today that we're going to address is, what would Jesus do? Jesus knew, like we do not know, Jesus knew that this was the last day of his life. And interestingly, I quoted this from Mussolini because Jesus, in the last day of his life, is going to be both a lion and a lamb. He's going to put them both together. And did you notice in the songs we sang in worship, put the two together, the lion and the lamb. We're going to see him in the last hours of his life, both as a lion, as a lamb. So I welcome you to Maundy Thursday. This is within 24 hours of the last day of Jesus' life. Now what he's going to do in this last day is probably something that all of you would want to do. You would want to spend the last day of your life with your closest friends on earth, and you'd probably pour out your heart in ways that you may not have ever done before, and that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to hit on all the themes that are closest to his heart as he speaks with and spends the last hours of his life together with his disciples. So here we go on many chapters in the Bible, particularly John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. All of those are what is called the Upper Room Discourse. And the, this day is going to begin with Jesus celebrating the Passover, and it's going to end with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so here's Monday Thursday. It all begins with preparation. If you knew that this was going to be the last day of your life, probably you wouldn't just let it happen. You would know what you wanted to do with that last day, and you would make sure that what you wanted it to do and to be would happen. So now Jesus, on the last day of his life, is going to take charge, and he is going to prepare the setting. 
Here's how it begins. Jesus prepares. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, that's a week-long festival, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him. And by the way, the other gospels say, this man is going to be carrying a water jug. Now, if you know anything about these societies, as I do from Africa, men don't carry water jugs. Women carry water jugs. And so Jesus says, you will find a man carrying a water jug. That alone is going to be kind of weird because it doesn't normally happen. You're supposed to go to this person that has a water jug, perhaps on his head, and say, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. So probably, we don't know, maybe this was a miracle. Maybe Jesus, in his foreknowledge, he knew that there was going to be a man at such and such a place who had a, pla a room where they could meet with his disciples who would be carrying a water jug. Maybe Jesus knew that. But maybe he set it all up. That's, we don't know which one is true, but either one. But in either case, whether he exercised his foreknowledge or he prepared the way, we do know that Jesus was in charge of what took place. He knew that he wanted to spend the last hours of his life with his friends alone in an upper room. And so he made the first preparations. Now, um, if you were going to spend the last day of your life with the people you knew and loved, you knew best and you loved most, probably you would want the setting to be just right. You probably wouldn't say, well, let's, let's go out to eat at a noisy restaurant because that would be like the worst environment you could think of. You want to go to some place where you could hear and be heard, where you could be alone. And so Jesus picked an upper room. He prepared the venue. And then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell his followers how much he loved them. Now, I can assume that every one of us in this room, if you knew you had only one day to spend for the rest of your life, you would spend that time with the people you loved most, and hopefully you would tell them that. I, I can't imagine you wouldn't. In fact, we should be doing that all the time. But that's what he is going to do. Listen to what he said. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. As you know, they didn't sit at the table like we're going to see a picture from Da Vinci with Jesus um, on the, uh, there, like one like this with Jesus sitting at a table. That's not how they did it. They would have had a very low table like this and they would have leaned on their, shoulder, on their arm as they ate their food with their other hand, probably this way because they didn't use their left hand. They would have eaten this way and their feet would have been out away because remember, this was a dirty Dusty roads, they had no sidewalks back then like we have today. Their feet would have been dirty and you don't want smelly feet in your food. So the feet would be away from them and they would lean into the low table. They would recline or they would lay down. He said, I have eagerly desired. Some of the Bible translations say, I long to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not find, eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus knew this was the Last Supper. 
He had told his disciples over and over again that he was going to be crucified and that he would be raised again, but they didn't get it. They didn't want to get it. He knew. And now he tells them, I want to spend this last meal with you. Of course, here's da Vinci's picture of it. He would have put Jesus in the middle of probably a U-shaped table like this. He would be in the middle, and the two honored positions would be on his left and on his right. Most people suggest that the people in these two positions were John, the apostle, and Judas Iscariot. Those were the two who Jesus purposely placed next to himself at this very important meeting. Now, if you were together with your family and you had a long meal, let's say a six-hour meal, that's a very long one, and you're going to spend the last day of your life with your family. During the conversation, my guess is that something would come up that you don't like. And that's exactly what happened. So now, here you have Jesus at the table with his disciples around him. He's got two honored positions, the position that John probably is, is, is in, the position that Judah, Judas is in, and the disciples start to discuss among each other which of them is the greatest. Now, it's obvious because they say, whoa, 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 why did John get to sit there? Hey, I'm Peter. I deserve it. Judas, why does... Well, maybe because he's the treasurer. Why does Judas get that position? Now, by the way, we find in the scriptures that over and over again, the disciples discussed among themselves which of them was the greatest. That's the way it is with all of us. If it's your sports team, whether it's the class ranking, whether it's your family, everyone likes to know they're the favorite. Everyone likes to know where you sit in the pecking order. And so do the disciples. And in fact, some of their own mothers were interested in where they would sit in the pecking order. They knew that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, would be high in the pecking order because they were among the three that Jesus gave special privileges to. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, where do my boys get? Do, are they, is that like the prime minister and the assistant prime minister? Is that the president and the vice president? Is that the secretary of state? Which is by the positions that my, just my boys are going to get? And Jesus said, <laughs> what would you do if that came up in your table? Let's say you're, you're together with your family, you're at a restaurant, and now the discussion says, you know, I've always thought that mom loved you the most. <laughs> Has that ever happened? You better believe it does. If you don't think families discuss who the favorite is, you haven't been in a family very long. And by the way, this whole theme of favoritism is very common in the Bible, and it wreaks havoc. And so, that's what they're doing. They're discussing, you know, which, which of us? And of course, Peter would say, well, I'm obviously the prime minister. You know, I'm the one that's going to lead this group. They discuss which of them is the greatest. Now, what would, Jesus is overhearing this conversation. What's he going to do on the last day of his life? Say, uh, oh, cute. I just want everything to be positive. It's not Jesus. That's wimp. He's going to deal with it. And he does. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. You've got, you've got it all backwards. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about pecking order. It's not about where you find yourself in the hierarchy. It's not by the title you have or the position you hold. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about serving other people. That's greatness. He doesn't let this discussion pass him by. He decides he's going to address it again. He's already addressed it multiple times with his disciples, but they're a little slow, just like we are. They didn't get it, and so he addresses it again. And then, since the subject was greatness, Jesus is now going to do one of the most important acts that he's ever done, maybe second to the cross. He is going to do something that's completely outside the box. Remember, the discussion has just been which of them is the greatest. And Jesus is going to seize this pregnant moment, this teachable moment, to show them something very significant. Here's what happens. He's now going to teach them what leadership really means. Here's what the Bible says. It was just before the Passover feast. That is, just before they were ready to eat their food. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. What's he going to do? Here's what he did. He's going to get down, and he's going to take off his outer garment and get a towel and a basin with water, and he's going to go to his disciples and wash their dirty feet. Now, by the way, this was something that was to be done by a servant because it was a very, very lowly and dirty task, very menial task. But remember, there were probably no servants at this particular Last Supper, and none of the other disciples had offered, hey, I'll wash feet tonight. No one had. So here they are, all these men with their dirty feet, at least pointed away from the table, thankfully, and no one had ever offered to wash their feet. And so Jesus, the Master and the Lord, he gets down and he washes their feet. You remember what happened with Peter? Peter says, hey, no, you can't wash my feet. Jesus says, oh, so you don't want to be part of this group? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, why don't you give me a bath? Jesus said, Peter, you took a bath before you came, but your feet are dirty. I'm trying to teach you a lesson, Peter. Don't you get it? You see, you call me teacher. You call me Lord. That's what I am. I am your teacher. I am your Lord. I'm your Lord more than you know. I am your God. I am your creator. Now that I, your teacher, and your Lord have washed your feet, this is the way you're supposed to treat other people. You now, if you have a position of leadership, you are a servant of the people you lead. He redefines leadership. We, we, we throw around the term in our society today, a servant leader. Oh, isn't that sweet? And then they get all the perks and all the money and all the, the, the fancy things, and we say, well, where's the servanthood? Well, that's a nice word, but it doesn't really work in reality. Jesus says, yes, it does in my kingdom. 
The greatest among you will be your children. They're the ones who best understand oftentimes what it means to trust me. And the ones who lead you are the ones who serve you. He redefines leadership in a very incredible way. I love this picture because it shows some very dirty feet. And I have every reason to suspect the disciples' feet looked something like that. Now they're at the table. Jesus has just washed everyone's feet, including the feet of Judas. And it is at this point in the meal, or in, in their gathering together, that Jesus is going to identify Judas as the betrayer. While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Now just take that line alone. Isn't that amazing? First of all, that shows you a lot about the character of these disciples. Jesus said to them, one of you would betray me, and, and they thought, well, it could be me. They had no idea it was Judas at all. They suspected that they were the betrayer more than they suspected that Judas was the betrayer. They said, am I the one? That's a horrible thought to think of, that you might be the one. They thought they might be the betrayer. Jesus replied, by the way, what they did with their, their food back then is they would take a piece of like pita bread and dip it in and get some meat on it and then put it in like chutney, which would be a fruit mixture, and then they would eat that. He said, I'm going to take this pita bread and I'm going to dip it in the bowl with the fruit salad, you can say, on it, and then I'm going to give it to the person who's going to betray me. And I, if I was one of the disciples, I'd want to go, you know, don't give it to me. And so he did that. But before he did, he said, Woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better if he had never been born. So what's he going to do? Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? Now that's a bunch of nonsense because he had already received the payment for, for, for betraying Jesus. Jesus answered, You have said so. And he gave the bread to Judas. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Now, can you imagine that? Remember uh, last week I mentioned to you this phrase we use, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't feel, fool all the people all the time. That's not true. Here Judas had fooled all the people all the time. They had no idea that Judas was the betrayer. And even when Jesus said, here is the guy, they go, oh, what, what, why Judas leave? They couldn't, they didn't get it. Now the betrayer has been identified and Judas has left and the disciples have no idea why he's gone. And Jesus now turns to another subject. 
Because perhaps now the disciples are saying to themselves, well, at least he didn't give that piece of bread to me. That's a good deal. But what they don't know is Jesus is about now to identify them. What we find in that this is from the Gospel of Luke, but if you put the other Gospels together, you realize that when Jesus talked about the fact that his disciples would deny him, he said all of them would deny him. And the Bible tells us that all of them denied that they would deny him. But now he's going to focus his attention on, on Peter. Simon, Simon. And by the way, I think you'll find this in the New American Standard Bible, which is the one most literal of all the Bibles. It goes like this. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. I love the wording. Demanded permission. Demanded talks about his character. Permission talks about his power. Demanded. I demand this. Please. Because he has to get permission. He can't do it. It shows his character. Satan, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Whoa. What would you do if, if you were in God's shoes? Would you grant that request? God did. But with a proviso. But Simon, I've prayed for you. Notice what it says, Simon, I didn't pray that you would not fail because Simon is going to fail. But what Jesus' prayer was, I pray that your faith may not fail. And that prayer was answered. Simon is going to fail, but his faith is not going to fail. In fact, his faith is going to be strengthened. And Jesus anticipates that he's going to fail because he's going to be sifted by Satan. He's facing a power infinitely greater than he is. Jesus has prayed that his faith would not fail. And Jesus says, and after you've turned, after you've failed, you're going to be uniquely able to help others. That's going to be a benefit to you. I, and he replied, Lord, oh, you don't know me. I, I, I'm ready to die with you. I'll go to prison with you. He said, Peter, you're not even going to get through this night before you've three times denied you even know who I am. Os Guinness is a, a, a British sociologist and a wonderful um, writer, apologist of Christianity. He wrote this. He said, on the one hand, in matters of the spirit, nothing fails like success. On the other hand, in matters of the spirit, nothing succeeds like failure. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, you realize that almost everything is upside down. Just like Jesus said, leadership is upside down. It's not about power, and it's not about perks, and it's not about money. It's about serving. But failure and success are upside down in God's kingdom. Success will almost always lead us to pride, and pride will lead us away from God. Failure, if we rightly understand it, when we fail, we're in a good spot spiritually because failure leads us to our knees, and our knees lead us to God. It's a good thing. Not that you should go out and fail. Don't do that. Because we have enough failure in our own lives. 
But here now Peter's going to fail, but his, fail is going to, his failure is going to result in his being strengthened in his faith and now uniquely able to help others because he has failed. That's a good place to be. Well, it's at this point now, Judas is gone. Peter has been called out that he's about to deny Jesus. And it's at this point that Jesus takes the bread and the cup. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks, broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take it. This is my body. Oh, you've heard those words many, many times when we celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper or in some traditions, the Eucharist together. And then he took the cup. He gave thanks and it offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Why did Jesus do this? Well, obviously, if you, it was the last day of your life and you knew that was to be the case, you would want to do some things that would be memorable. And Jesus chooses this act, which we have been remembering now for 2,000 years all over this globe in many, many different ways with every culture you can think of. It worked very well. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And now begins what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Remember, Judas is gone. Peter has been called out. The Lord's Supper, as we call it today, has already taken place. And now Jesus is going to pour out his heart. What we see in these chapters, John 14, 15, and 16, is only recorded for us in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell us anything about this. This is written by John many years later after Matthew, Mark, and Luke are long gone. Now John gives to our world the things Jesus said just before he left this world. And there are three big themes. The first theme is the theme of comfort. If you've told your disciples, this is it, this is the last day, this is our last meal together, the first thing you'd want to do with them is to comfort them. And that's where Jesus begins. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Oh, you know the way to the place where I'm going? Thomas said, no, we don't. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Then he goes on to say, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father. And he will give you another counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. That's very, very comforting. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him, and I will show myself to him. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So those are Jesus' words of comfort that we find highlighted in chapter 14. In chapter 15, we have the great, great chapter that is known to us as the vine and the branches. 
And what we're going to find in this chapter of the Bible is that Jesus is going to speak about three relationships that we need to maintain. First of all, the relationship that we have with God the Father and with himself as the vine. Secondly, the kind of relationships that we're supposed to have with each other. And thirdly, the kind of relationships that we will have with the world. First of all, the relationship with Jesus. I am the true vine and my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that bears fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. No fruit at all means cut off. Some fruit means, ah, God will prune us. He wants more fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Spiritually, we can't do anything if we're not attached to the vine who is Jesus. And now he's going to turn to the horizontal relationships. My command is this, and this is where we get Maundy Thursday from. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends, Jesus said, just before he lays down his life. But then he says there's going to be a relationship you're going to have with the world in which you live, and that relationship is not going to be pleasant. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. So the relationship we have with God is characterized by remaining in the vine, keeping the connection strong. The relationship we have with others in the body of Christ is that we love them sacrificially. The relationship we have with our world, even though the world may not like us, in fact, they won't like us if we follow Jesus, we don't return that in kind. We don't give hate for hate. We give love for hate. Then he turns to the last words in chapter 16. And these are words of hope. First of all, words of comfort, then words of relationship, and now words of hope. I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away. The disciples must have gone, no, it's not. He says, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the whole world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. You see, when I leave, you're going to be in better shape because each of you will have the Holy Spirit now to be your guide, to be your convictor, to make what I have taught you real in your life. You're going to be in good shape. There is great hope because of the Holy Spirit. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take hope. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And then what does Jesus do? He prays for them. We like to call the Our Father who art in heaven, we call that the Lord's Prayer. That's not the Lord's Prayer. That's our prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. In the first part of Jesus' prayer, he's going to talk to his Father. And then he's going to pray for the disciples who are around this table with him. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So he first of all prays to his Father. Then he prays for his fellow disciples. And then he prays 
for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then in the Mount of Olives you find Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane and that's what some of our pictures depict here today. And it's a time of great anguish. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And as he's pouring out the, the, most, the greatest anguish of his life to date, his disciples are sacking out. And he can't keep them awake. And finally Jesus says, okay, sleep. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but yet not as I will, but as you will. And then Judas betrayed him. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And this is what Matthew recorded. Jesus replied, friend. Can you believe that? Friend. Do what you came for. And so this is what Jesus did on the last day of his life. Not a single one of us in this room know if we have one day left. And maybe what Jesus did on his, the last day of his life is something we ought to do all the time. Because we never know. He knew. We don't know. Here's what Jesus did. And maybe there's some of these that you ought to be doing today and I ought to do as well. One, express your affection. Why do we wait? Maybe today is the day that you call a son, a daughter, a friend, and say, you know, I really miss you. I love you. Lovingly voice your concerns. Sometimes they're real concerns. We ought to voice them, but lovingly so. Jesus was incredibly loving. They're constantly talking about how great they thought they were, and Jesus has to address that. Highlight your priorities. Make memories. Provide comfort. Strengthen relationships, because that's what life is all about. Engender hope. Fervently pray. And above all, focus on Jesus. That's what Jesus did on the final day of his life. And maybe that's something we ought to do as often as we can, not knowing how long our lives will be. And Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. It's stunning what he did and how he did it. And just the perfection of his life is stunning to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help each of us in this place. You call him the spirit of truth. To understand from these last words of Jesus, what are the words you would wish to say to us? The concerns you would address, the, the redirections, the priorities, the affection. I pray that each of us this day would leave having learned something from Jesus that we could apply in our lives today and every day. 
as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.